0: Well, hello. Today we have Molly on the podcast and Molly Zive is a therapist who specializes in ketamine assisted therapy. And she also has a specialty in family systems. So we'll get to dive into that today with Molly. So before I go any further, Molly, why
1: don't you tell us all about you, where you're from and how you got into this field? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am Molly Zive. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm living in San Diego. I'm actually born and raised in San Diego, too. It's like a place that is difficult for me to leave. So I'm in Southern California. And I got into therapy initially, like when I was 16 years old, I was really inspired to become a therapist because of my own. Panic attacks and anxiety, and things that I was dealing with. I actually went to an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker. And I was like, I want to be that. She helped me so much that I want to help other people in that way. So that kind of is what started my psychotherapy journey. And then the ketamine just, it, I really feel like the medicine finds you and that's kind of what happened is I was going through my own stuff and maybe we can dive deeper into that in just a moment. But I I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is so profound. The level of healing that I'm experiencing. How do I bring this to other people? You know, like I was, I was like, how can I do this in an ethical way with clients using the skill base that I already have? Like there has to be a way to marry the two. And I figured it out, which is really amazing. Mm -hmm. I find
0: that the more that people dive into therapy, the more savvy we become and the deeper and deeper we kind of surface other things. So when was the moment that you realized that you needed something more, that Mm -hmm. ketamine was the thing to go towards?
1: Yeah. So I had experienced other psychedelics recreationally and I never did it in a therapeutic way or like with much intention around it. And I was doing all the things, right? Like I was going to talk therapy. I was doing couples work. Even I was going to yoga. I was journaling every day, but I, I couldn't like penetrate a, a deeper part of me. So a lot of this, the inspiration comes from my own self-healing. Like I'm figuring out what's working for me and then I'm bringing it to society or my community in a sense. So it was, I was struggling a lot. It was right when the Roe versus Wade was overturned and all my clients were coming to me and they were like, I've had to have an abortion. I've had Mm -hmm. to do this. And my interns were talking to me about it and just like, The level of anger that I was experiencing, and I didn't know how to get it out. So it came up for me as anxiety. And I got antidepressants, Mm -hmm. which I asked my doctor for. I said, I think it's time again that I go on antidepressants. And I have no shame in telling people that I've been on antidepressants because I think that's very important and it's really good for minimizing symptoms. But I knew, I knew based on my experience that it wasn't going to get to the root of it. And psychedelics was able to get to the root of it. And I've been, you know, in my own sobriety with alcohol ever since I've been a lot more focused. I have I just really experienced for the first time, like a deep, deep, deep truth within me that I never thought I had access to. Mm.
0: It does sound like you're deeply empathetic when it comes to the people around you and society and the issues at play. Mm -hmm. I am wondering back when you were younger, where do you think some of that anxiety in your younger days came from?
1: Yeah, I think the same thing. Like, I think that, like, I always felt the energy of animals and plants and just the injustices. Like, if I saw a kid in my classroom be bullied, or like maybe they had like special needs, like, I always felt myself feeling more than other people around me. And I'm like, I, you know, when you're When you're that sensitive and people around you aren't really mirroring that, you think something might be wrong with you, right? Like I, And I think that that's where a lot of the anxiety came from was like, I had this whole other level of sensitivity that I was tapped into, but I didn't know where to put it. And so a lot of that got pushed down. And in high school, I was like, I used humor a lot to kind of deflect everything. And I I just eventually I couldn't outrun it, you know, like you can't outrun some of the things that you're like, that's authentically you. And so I think that that's where the anxiety was like, I was putting a mask on too much when I was a kid that it it finally caught up to me. And, you know, I experienced my own traumas medically, my and then my family was divorced. And so I think that there's just been a lot of things that have happened in my life, but I haven't necessarily found the tools to process them. And that's why I'm just so glad that I found ketamine and other psychedelics to help me sort of process some of these things that live inside of me and my body remembers, but maybe at the time I didn't have the capacity to kind of take it, get it out of me.
0: Mm. You're kind of like a sponge in the most lovely way. I just feel like, patients, the fact that you've gone into this field, patients must really feel your empathy and your deep care for them.
1: I receive you give me chills. I receive, I receive, I receive. Thank you for reflecting that back to me because it, you know, on, on the best days, it is a strength and on the worst day, it is a huge weakness of mine. So it's nice to have someone sort of like reflect that light back to you when, you know, some, some days are really, really hard. And, Mm -hmm. and I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. You are hands down
0: my ba- my favorite kind of therapist. You are the type of therapist I'm drawn towards, so yeah, I sense it. I know. Are we? Can we be friends after
1: this? I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing
0: later? <laughs> I know, right? I, I will say the people from San Diego are the happiest people I've ever met. Every time I go visit, people are just in love with San Diego and I totally get it. So I will hit you up the next time
1: I'm there. <laughs> yes, please do. We're going to hang out.
0: <laughs> but uh, what were some of your aha moments that maybe popped up over your time with therapy and ketamine?
1: Mm-hmm. I want to focus specifically on ketamine and I'm, again, I'm getting like full body chills, like thank you universe. You know, simultaneously as I was getting trained in my ketamine training with Lauren House, we were also learning about something called internal family systems, which is also known as IFS for short. But basically like we all have these different parts within us and some of the parts of ours have been, bless you, are you sneezing? Some of our parts have been exiled, some of our younger parts. And I didn't realize until I did my first ketamine journey how much my seven-year-old self was screaming to come out. And I actually, I need to show you this. Cause I like, I keep her, she's very near and dear to me. Now I keep my little school picture of her right in front of me every day that I work. And like, we're buds now. I'm like, I am so sorry for neglecting you for so many years. And now we're at a point in our life where we're in our thirties. And like, I can buy you the Lisa Frank Crocs that you've always wanted, you know, like I'm really here to listen to you and I dress a lot more like my seven-year-old self and I'm into the same things that my seven-year-old self was into, like making art. And so that was like one of the biggest aha moments was like, I can have this relationship with this part of me that I've been stuffing down for a lot of different reasons. So that was a huge one for me.
0: Mm. if only you guys can see this picture, Molly is in the cutest little red bow in her hair and she has big curls (laughs) with a big smile. What, what about your seven-year-old self stands out to you? Why are you drawn to that version of you? Yeah. Like, I feel
1: like I'm going to get emotional because she's just like so rad. She's like so rad when she came through to me in my ketamine journey. Like I, I just felt this level of trust and deep, deep, deep gratitude. Like I, I remember asking myself in the ketamine journey things about my business, for example, and I'm like, I trust this part of me way more than I trust the adults in my life. Like she knows what's up. Like she's got style. she like has confidence. She's like a person that knows what she wants in life. And I think she's, the most the way I interpreted it and the way I'm integrating it is like she was the most whole version of me meaning like right after that I suffered a medical trauma and my parents divorce and da 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 but like she like my parts have been fragmented since that time. And so the seven-year-old part of me, is just so whole and beautiful and like her just authentic self. And I just really love that about her. And she is a sponge. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of the same qualities are are coming out, but I'm just using it now for like light versus like, why am I feeling everything? You know? Mm. So do you
0: feel like when you're making decisions, you try to draw on that, that seven-year-old?
1: Yeah. Which seems like counterintuitive. Like, why are you asking a kid, like <laughs> some of these big decisions, but like, she has just such deep, deep, deep knowing and resonance with things that if it's like not a hell yes, then from her, I'm like, mm, probably not, you know, like she's so intuitive that I just, I really try to check in with her. And then like, Also, you know, a lot of the parts work is reminding some of our parts that are maybe more traumatized, like how old we are now, you know, they're very stuck in and feeling like they're still that seven year old that can't really stick up for themselves or like do anything to help themselves. And so like reminding those parts of me to look how how old we are now and how cool life is, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting when we
0: can kind of pinpoint that for you. You've been able to pin it down. I think even from an intuitive eating lens, the work that I do, it's always about unlearning everything that has been stacked onto us as adults, whether it's rules or logic or numbers and just simplifying everything down to when you were young. And I think even in my own therapy journey, it's felt like that where it's like, okay, like all of the things that have been piled on, I didn't need any of that. All therapy is, is like shedding all of the things that we actually are not serving us.
1: (laughs) Yes. Very well said. It's very, that's very well said. There's a lot of unlearning and then getting to know yourself again, right? Getting to know the seven-year-old part of me again, who's always been inside, but I wasn't necessarily listening to because I was listening to what everyone else was telling me to be or what I thought society told me to be. So that unlearning is so powerful. I'm glad you're doing that work. Mm Hmm it actually reminds me of, I remember I used to have the
0: biggest laugh as a kid. It was like obnoxious, but I like never thought about it. I just laughed like that. And I remember one day, some kid in school was like, your laugh is really loud. And that was the day I never laughed like that again. And I don't even remember what that original laugh was. But every day after that, I was like, thinking about the way I laughed and laughed differently. So even from that tiny example, it's like, yeah, wh- what are we doing here? Like, what did I learn? And how can I unlearn this?
1: <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear that laugh. By the way, I would I would do anything to hear that like authentic, like stomach laugh because but it's it's amazing that like even that one comment really changed the trajectory of the way that you felt about yourself with this particular thing. hmm. And it's like, this
0: is such a tiny example. But Every day growing up, we have so much feedback from the external world of like how we should be. Mm-hmm. It's only it it only makes sense that there's so much conflict in all of us as adults. So i'm I'm glad you brought up your seven year old self. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I'm also wondering, as you've been doing this work, because, you know, when I think of family systems, I also think of your family unit. Mm-hmm. So how has your interaction with your family changed after doing this work?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm a huge systems person. Like that's pretty much the first theory they teach us in social work school is like, what are the different systems that we're in, including our family system, our school system, our, you know, our community in San Diego, like kind of like the systems keep going outward and looking at that. And so You know, I, I work a lot with LGBTQ plus folks and they have this, like a lot of them have this chosen family and, and not by choice. I shouldn't be saying that that was a choice by them, but maybe because like their family of origin didn't always support them. So they've created this like really beautiful chosen family. And I really identify with that. You know, when, when my family may not see me in the ways that I need them to, like I have select family members and and mentors and things like that, where I really choose to show those authentic parts of me. And with my family, like when I came out of my intramuscular journey, which is like a, a needle, like a shot of ketamine, it was the second time I'd taken ketamine. I just like intrinsically knew that my mom and my dad had always loved me and it didn't, Mm -hmm. it hasn't always felt like that in my life. And so afterwards I kind of let it you know, integrate a little bit. And the next day I sent them a text and I was like, thank you so much for always loving me. This is an invitation for you to do some psychedelic work. I really want them to do psychedelics. You know, I'm not going to cram it down your throat, but like, I'm always an open book if you want to start talking about this. And then some feedback that I got from some of my trainers and colleagues in that training was like, they're going to see your life and they're going to recognize how much you've changed. And they might want some of that, you know, may not, maybe not, but like, they're going to see how, how great my life is because I'm healing myself with this medicine.
0: Mm. When you made that realization,
1: what shifted in your life? Everything. I'm telling you, everything (laughs) has shifted. And I'm not, I'm ketamine is not a silver bullet. Like it had to do with the amount of work that I was doing on myself at the same time. But I, I really feel like I'm not as scared. I'm not as I'm not as worried all the time. I'm not, you know, like I said, like I intrinsically knew that my parents knew me. I intrinsically knew it's it's nothing but love from everyone, you know, and this like level of interconnectedness, which, you know, is I kind of thought was like BS at first when some of the people in the psychedelic space were like, it's all love. Like we're, <laughs> we're just all moving and love and inner. And then you take the psychedelic and you're like, holy, yeah, it is all of, you know? And so mm-hmm. I just feel more tapped into that, that, that energy and that, you know, self energy or higher self energy where I can, I feel more supported in my life. And that came intrinsically through me and innately through me. Like I didn't have to look outside of myself for that level of support. Like we have to, when we're kids, you know, like we're very dependent on our parents. And so to kind of like reconcile that within me, in my thirties, I'm like, Oh, I can support myself. I can be the parent that I've always wanted. I can like reassure myself. I can buy myself those Crocs that I really wanted. I don't know why I keep going back to Crocs, but it's just <laughs> kind of that level of like, I can do this for myself now. And I don't have to outsource it. Mm. It,
0: oh my gosh, this is, This is kind of at the core of everything because I think in a lot of my patients, when they feel isolated or they don't feel supported or loved, going back to their family or even beyond, that's where a lot of these issues that I see when it comes to body image or eating issues come from.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, My relationship with food was at its worst when I felt isolated and I felt like my parents weren't emotionally supportive or didn't Mm -hmm. have the language to support me in that way. So as a kid, I literally had no vocabulary for emotions. I didn't Mm -hmm. know how to emote, nor did my parents. So they didn't really show me that very sort of overt type of love through emotions. Mm -hmm. It was through food. And so you can see how it's just like a trickling of like, well, I didn't know how to express my emotions and my parents just gave me food. That's our only language. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't feel the, the different levels of love, you know, from different facets. And so it took a long time for me to understand, like, yes, they love me too but in a very different way but once i can make that understanding it just feels so much more warm like you're right i don't need food to give me the warmth and love i can i can feel it from other sources too
1: yeah i'm curious to know like what your i know it's not a, if you don't feel comfortable but like what your relationship is like with them now like are you able to be more emotional
0: Mm, to this day, it's such a challenge because I don't think they have the vocabulary to emote. And so it's almost like a gap in knowledge that, like, mm-hmm. I'm more of an adult self now with all of these words to describe how I'm feeling. But if I bring that up in conversation, they'll just look at me blankly. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and this is also partly because my parents are first gen and they're Asian and the, the, the kind of vocabulary vocabulary for it is so limited. Growing up, they repressed a lot of emotions. Mm-hmm. So I've had to really come to terms with that. But I think, yeah, growing up, it was just an interesting experience. I just didn't feel like I belonged in my greater mm-hmm. community,
1: mm-hmm. nor did
0: I feel like I could accept them for who they were because they were so different and they weren't fluent. They weren't cool enough. They weren't smart enough. All of the things that a teenager thinks of their parents, but just exaggerated because we were immigrants at that time Mm -hmm. and everything was so foreign. So I think my interest in this field in particular is... I want to be able to embrace all humans and feel that interconnectedness, especially for my parents, because as much as I respect them and what they've gone through, there's a part of me, that angry adolescent, that's like, Mm -hmm. ugh, but why did we have to go through that, right? Ugh, why didn't you know the language fluently? Why did I have to, like, punch in the the like credit card number at grocery stores, because you didn't know how to like slide your credit card, like a lot of that resentment is Mm -hmm. still bubbling. And I think that's why I'm so drawn to this work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you for your vulnerability. And like, I think that not to bypass the suffering, because I'm not that type but like there are a lot of gifts that you were given I'm, I'm just hearing in your own insight because you had that experience like now you can really meet people where they're at with like this level of empathy and like that not belonging feeling I don't know how many people can identify with it I certainly cannot I, I can't sorry I can identify with not belonging so I think it it gives us this extra layer of empathy and consideration when we're working with people because we know what it's like to feel like we're othered you know Mm hmm. I think that's it's when you talked about psychedelics,
0: you talked about the interconnectedness with the universe and the world and humans. And I think that's at the end of the day, all we really want as humans, if we mm-hmm. really strip down everything, nothing really matters, but how connected we feel to ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that this is such important work to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And there's this, it is such important work. And like, if you're talking about like ketamine or psychedelics specifically, there's a, also this level of like really conscious care that needs to come around, like come, you know, wrap around the ketamine. You can go to a ketamine clinic and be like hooked up with ketamine and IV. And this is not to speak badly on those clinics, but you don't have that sort of like therapist guide with you to kind of like walk you through some of these really big things that are happening. And so I take this job very seriously. I, I take being a therapist very seriously, but like especially in the psychedelic space, because sometimes, you know, we don't know if it's gonna be a quote unquote bad trip, you know, or or if they're gonna find themselves like looping and we kind of have to like step in and intervene and gently remind them of their intention or that they can breathe or maybe they need to hold my hand, you know, like I think it's really important that we talk about this level Level of like consciousness around psychedelics, because like I said, I, I did psychedelics recreationally too, and mm-hmm. it was cool, but like this level of intentionality around the therapeutic use of a psychedelic is a whole different level. And it's like really mm-hmm. difficult for me to go back to the recreational way of doing it. Like I want to do it. I want to be like, Oh, carefree. But I'm like, there's so much intentionality and juiciness and insight and integration that needs to come from some of these experiences that I'm having that, you know, really heightened my consciousness through psychedelic.
0: Mm. When it comes to your work with patients, what do you see come up most? What Mm -hmm. are, I don't know if you can share this, but what are some of the things that people want to get out of therapy with you?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I would say some themes are kind of what we touched on right now, like this experience of who they were told to be. I work with a lot of millennials, so it's like, you know, they got the college degree, they got their first job and it's like, well, now what? Like I'm not really feeling fulfilled or like I have a purpose, but this is what my parents told me to do or this is what society tells me to do. So really working with that pattern and like kind of what you were saying about the unlearning. And then also really tapping into like, what would be a purposeful life for you? You know, like you're an engineer now, but what would it be like for you to be an artist or, you know, be in the psychedelic space? I have one person, one client who started psychedelic work with me. And now he's like, Really wanting to be in that space and like be a part in some way using his skill set. And I just think that's really cool. It's like, yeah, you've had this really profound experience and now you're trying to be a part of something bigger than yourself and connect with other people. So I think that unlearning and then like the finding the purpose is a huge theme, along with like that secure attachment to self, right? That that higher self, that secure attachment to you know, being able to like yourself at the end of the day, like that self-love component. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's like, what are the thoughts that you're experiencing? Like, we're taught not to do any harm, but we need to start with not doing harm to ourselves first. Like, and that starts mm-hmm. with our thinking patterns. If we're constantly beating ourselves up, that's doing harm to ourselves. Thus, we can't, mm-hmm. we're doing harm to other people and our relationships and everything else around us. So, mm-hmm. the self love is like a huge thing that I preach, but I can't always go through the front door with that with people because I think it's like a little too hokey. So, I have to kind of go through the side door of approaching that topic with people hmm. Totally. And I think when you think about
0: insecure attachment to self, there's mm-hmm. so many ways that that can surface in a person's life. What specifically do you see come up for people when they are insecurely attached to themselves?
1: Yeah. Every single addiction you can think of to food, to alcohol, to drugs, to people, to relationships, to sex, to like any sort of addiction, which I also think is a coping skill. I really think that at the very basis of every addiction is trauma. Like everyone's just trying to act out in the best way that they can. So I think that when people have this insecure attachment to self, they're con like I was saying, like, I was constantly outsourcing that to other things and other people to make myself feel better about myself when really that's like an inside job.
0: Mm -hmm. I think the fact that you had the insight to pause and be like, okay, this doesn't feel great anymore. Mm -hmm. I do wonder if a lot of people just are in that hamster wheel running for years and years and years, not realizing, wow, I'm doing this. But I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I see this too, day in and day out. But how do you know that you're inching towards more secure attachment to yourself?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there has to be kind of this, I don't want to call it crisis because I don't want to freak anyone out, but like there has to be some level of intervention where you kind of have that insight to be like this isn't working anymore. Like the gig is up. Like I'm miserable. I'm not sleeping. I'm going to this job that I hate, or I'm, I'm taking five shots before I go out and see my friends, you know, like the, those, that level of insight and intervention. I I feel like when I start therapy with people, I tell them like, it might get worse before it gets better and that's okay like that's part of the process so when we ta- when we're thinking about a secure attachment to ourselves it's like navigating the waters even when it's hard and creating these new intentional patterns with ourselves you know like i'm sure you give people homework in in your line of work of like This is what you need to do. And it's not always the perfect conditions, right? But if you can start changing the behavior in not the perfect conditions, I think that that starts to like build that confidence of, oh, I can be secure with myself. I can do these things, even though it's really hard or uncomfortable. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it's just chipping away and exposure, I
1: think, Mm -hmm. day in Mm -hmm. and day out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way. Yes, that's a really good way. I don't want to say simplify because I don't think it was simplified, but that's exactly it
0: hmm. Yeah, I know this stuff is like it, it might sound like these therapies are like a shortcut in a way, maybe, but also it's like this is really the like you're doing the hard work. There's nothing
1: easy about this stuff. No, and managing expectations. I'm do you have to manage expectations with your clients? Totally. I think mm-hmm. people think, "Oh, if I just
0: understand the theory, it it'll just come to me and it's like it's going to work out perfectly." But it's like the analogy is always like, "You might understand the theory, but if I told you to write with your non-dominant hand, it's still going to be like scriggly, sc- mm. you know, scriggly and like it's going to take longer. It's going to take time." It's like mm-hmm. for how long you were having, you know, maybe more destructive behaviors, it might take the same amount of time for you to unlearn them and be, you know, in a more positive trajectory.
1: So Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. that expectation. And I love that you are, yeah, bringing light to that. It's, it's so true. It's like, we can conceptually do it, right? Like we all know how to lose weight, you exercise and you eat, right. But it's like, (laughs) that's, that's, we, we get it on a simplified level, but it's like emotionally and like these different layers to us that we we have that are so complex that don't always allow us to like, just, you know, make it from A to B, we have to go to A to Q to R to S and then to B, you know, like we, mm-hmm. we don't always have like that straight, we can't always do it that straight line.
0: Totally. Yeah, it's always a little bit scribbly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, I guess the last thing I'll ask you about is I had this patient come to mind, and this might feel feel like a tangent, but I'm just going to throw it out at you. Mm-hmm. And this has to do with integrating both family dynamics and therapy. But for the people out there listening who are maybe curious about this work, but have have reservations, this might this might relate. So, I'm going to go back and talk about this patient of mine who came to me with a lot of, with a lot of questions about his family. He was, he was thinking, why is it so uncomfortable for me to have a relaxing dinner with my parents as a grown adult? Why is mm-hmm. it so uncomfortable? And after kind of going through the different layers, it was the fact that he grew up having to take care of his family and serve everyone and be the person that made conversation. Everything about his family made him tense. He had no boundaries with his family. He felt like he needed to be everything with for his family. The handyman, the person that spent all of his time with his family, everything like that. And as an adult, he's finding it uncomfortable. And more and more, he's noticing, why does it feel so uncomfortable? Why mm-hmm. Why is it so so foreign to me now to give my everything to my family? And I, I think I'm bringing this up because I think when we are coming from families that are deep set in their ways, maybe it's a family with no boundaries and your time is my time, my time is your time or whatever it may be. How can therapy like this help someone just shift the way that they behave in their family and just ultimately benefit them.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love case conceptualization. I do clinical supervision. So this kind of reminds me of it. I love that, you know, starting with the awareness of like, what does it feel like to be around my family and getting to the deeper issue of like, why does it feel that way? And having that like sort of aha moment, because like you said, people are kind of in that hamster wheel. So they go their whole life, not really recognizing these things. So that's amazing for your client and his work that he's even recognizing those things. And then we have to look at the systems, right? Like if you come from a culture that has more of a collective system, that that's not abnormal, right? Like that's, you're looking at it all around you. That's how your, you know, grandparents were, your family, your extended family is. So it's like, you kind of have to be this like, one to break the chain or just just do things a little bit differently, which is really difficult when there's been this sort of level of conditioning to be a certain way in your family. So I love what you were saying about the boundaries. I think that that, in order for us to, you know, it's one thing to set a boundary, but it's really, really, really difficult to keep a boundary, if that makes sense. Like, people have the hardest time, like, just implementing them and like reminding their family members, like, hey, remember, this is what I said. I'm only available for one night a week dinner or whatever works for them. You know, I, I think that that level of boundary setting and then like not freaking themselves out that's a huge thing I see with therapy and myself included is like, the way we relate to our problems, we really freak ourselves out. We really like make ourselves feel very worried or very like insecure, very anxious because of the thoughts that we're having or how we're relating to those thoughts. So I think that, you know, with the boundary setting, like it's totally normal to be uncomfortable, like just normalizing that process, Mm -hmm. normalizing that because you want things differently, it is going to be uncomfortable. It's what you do in that uncomfortableness. Like we were saying, like creating that confidence within yourself, like it is going to get better because we can't change the people around us. Although I would love to, I would love to have a magic wand and make your life so much easier changing your parents or whatever it is. It's like the only person that we have control over is ourselves. And now that we're adults, we have to take accountability for that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's actually
0: so interesting because I I was just thinking about your seven year old self. It's like, if you were to act in a way that your seven year old self would act every single day for every single situation, people might find that really odd in the beginning, but that's going to feel hopefully better for you in the long run, yeah. the more that you do it and it's going to serve you ultimately more too. So yeah, it's just funny as adults, we do things in such a funny way that sometimes it's like, why are we doing it this way when it could be simpler for us and feel better?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like our parts, right? Our parts are still acting out that 12 year old self that had to be everything to everyone or, you know, that manager part that's trying to control the situation and can get ahead of everything and, you know, really judges ourselves. So So it's like, if we think about ourselves as parts, it really helps us unburden those parts of ourselves. Like, okay, part that's really critical. I have a very self-critical part. And I'm like, what is it that you actually want to be doing? Oh, running in a field and like playing all day. Okay. Like, let's see how we can, we can make that happen. If that makes sense. I know that's a big jump, but that's part of the IFS work is like really unburdening these parts that really don't want to be doing these things in the first place.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. I think there's a time and place for every part, but Mm -hmm. yeah, ultimately you have to decide like which part will actually be beneficial in this context. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, this is so fun. I think this is such a fun way of thinking about this work. You bring a lot of light to it, which I really enjoy. And so I would love to hear from you. What do your patients or how would your patients describe how you are as a therapist and the work that they do with you?
1: Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. And like probably what I needed right in this moment as a provider, you know, I'd like to think, (laughs) I'd like to think that I, you know, in our work together that I really hold space in an open way that allows people to just kind of like unfold without judgment. Like I love when people can be their authentic self around me. And I really hope that we create more of that in our sessions together so they can practice doing that in their everyday life, you know, outside of sessions and, and being that, you know, I never want people to think that their dreams or their aspirations are ever like too big. I'm like, talk about it with me. And the on the other side of the spectrum, I never want their, you know, thoughts of suicidality or, or anything else that might be scary to talk about to be too much for me. Like this is a space where we're you're allowed to talk about these things and it's pretty normal and as soon as like you start talking about it with me like my hope is that you start opening up to your support system and that you know things start working out for you so i hope that people would call me like open down to earth non-judgmental someone who does their own work who works really really hard on themselves because i freaking do <laughs> and then what was the second question mm-hmm. the yeah of- how, how would people
0: describe yeah the work that you do with mm-hmm. them and maybe what they get out of it
1: Oh, yeah, I think I think each person, it's so different, like there's no one protocol. But I think that like the ultimate goal of therapy is creating that secure attachment with your higher self, as I like to call it. And so as much as they can, you know, figuring out what that means for them and really implementing and integrating that into their life. I think that that's The most important part is that integration, right? Because if you just go to therapy and you're just like talking to your therapist for one hour a week, and then you're not really doing anything outside of that, it's like, you're not going to really see results. So I really try to empower people to do their own homework. I don't really like assign it because most of the time people (laughs) won't do it, but I, I really encourage people to be like, Hey, what would it be like if you, you know, someone who wants connection to connect with one of your coworkers once a week and just like have a 20 minute conversation, something as simple as that, but like really like these tangible ways to start feeling better. Um, And so I I think that like, ultimately it's to get them more stabilized and really like they're dope, right? Like, I just want all my clients to know you're dope, man. Like, and the more I can be dope with myself, like you can be dope. And so I've noticed that with my providers that the more authentic they are, the, the easier it is for me to like to feel like that can be pulled out of me. So that's just like my hope or intention with people is that they can be who they want to be and like themselves because there's no one else like them on this earth.
0: Mm. When you put that positivity, it's always just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just feels better when someone else brings that to you and you can see that like, oh, I am dope. Mm -hmm. So catch Molly and her Crocs and hopefully (laughs) we all get Crocs soon and can be just as dope as Molly and her (laughs) seven-year-old self.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and like you said, like, it's, it's not everyone's flavor. And I, I get that. I honor that. You know what I mean? But like, let me do my thing. Like, let me be the freak show that I am. And I'll let you be the freak show that you are, you know, like, I just I really want to just honor people's authenticity. And it's like, cool, if you don't think I'm cool, you know, like that, that's a that's an opinion. That's cool. <laughs> hmm. Yeah,
0: it's so great because I think in my work too, I'm trying to cultivate people's wise voice mm-hmm. and not so much their like rebellious child voice or their mm-hmm. like you know you should do this parent voice. But I yeah. think we we overlap in that way. But this has been so amazing, Molly. And I for anyone who wants to look more into your work and see what you have to offer, where can they
1: find you? Yeah, you can. My website is therapywithmolly.com, M O L L Y. You can also find me on Instagram at Molly's Ive Therapy. I'm sure that will be all linked up. And then I'm having this project, not a project, it's my business. It's coming to fruition called the Center of Intuition. And so that's where I offer more of my ketamine assisted psychotherapy and psychedelic therapy as things become legalized. So very exciting stuff. I'm just happy to be talking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Oh, this has been such a joy, Molly, and I can't wait to stay connected with you and hang out with you in San Diego. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Craving Food Freedom podcast. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. And please leave a review. I love hearing from you. Until next time, I will be right here rooting for you always on your ongoing journey towards food freedom.